0: This podcast covers a double homicide that occurred in Wildwood, Florida, in 1972. There have been no arrests in this case. All individuals are considered innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. The Witten Higgins case file included a criminal profile that was done around 1988, when a detective from Sumter County was taking a class and he met an FBI analyst in Quantico. They discussed the case, and he turned over the case file, and then a group of analysts from the FBI discussed it before a more formal profile was completed. Criminal profiles are generally not released, and for that reason, I'm going to include the full report so that we can discuss the evolving theories in this case. If you read the archived newspaper articles about this case, you can see that the initial case was stalled, and in fact, there is a report in the case file that suggests in the late 1970s they actually disposed of some of the evidence and then around the late 1980s an investigator who was taking another look at it asked for this profile to be done then what emerged in the early 1990s for a few years was a clear theory that included two perpetrators quotes from this very report made their way into newspaper articles and it appears to me at least that law enforcement had an idea of who they were looking at and seemed to be releasing specific excerpts in an effort to get locals to come forward. This was written by George Wilkins in June of 1990 in the Tampa Tribune.
1: The crime reports are dog-eared and yellow, but the photographs are no less grisly than they were 18 years ago. The photographs show 19-year-old Shirley Elizabeth Witten naked from the waist down, her head lying across the legs of the South Florida truck driver she was with, on February 22, 1972, the morning of their deaths. The keys were not found. Blood was found on the outside of the car and on the road into Oak Grove Cemetery. They do know Witten and the trucker were arm-in-arm arm when they left the Union 76 truck stop for her 3 a.m. break. And to me, this
0: suggests that they thought someone might have been watching as the couple left the restaurant. Someone who saw that and might have had an issue with Shirley leaving the premises with a man. So the inclusion of that detail in the 1990 article, when it's clear there was a reinvestigation going on, and this was likely one of those articles that police arrange to spotlight a case when they want to get certain bits of information out. I see it all the time in the cases that I cover.
1: Based on the profile and some other evidence, they believe there may have been two killers.
0: This also went on to note that police did believe Shirley was the intended victim, and they were relying at the time, in 1990, on a psychological profile, one that pointed to jealousy as a possible motive. Now, the profile speculated that at that time that there were possibly two perpetrators, one who was more dominant, who had initiated the killing, and maybe persuaded someone else to take part.
1: The dominant killer probably finished school only through 10th grade may have worked as a mechanic or service station attendant, maybe even at that interchange at I-75 and State Road 44. He may have known Shirley Whitten because she worked as a cashier nearby. His job probably kept him busy during the late night hours, say from 4 p.m. to midnight. After leaving work, he may have spent his off-duty hours cruising, looking for something to do for fun.
0: Now, to me, this sounds like they had a specific person in mind, because these are the pieces of the profile that they are releasing, in quotes, to the public. That seems to have changed by 2011, when they did a reinvestigation, and news articles were then saying they believed there was only one perpetrator. But back in the 90s,
1: investigators were going on the theory that there were possibly two perpetrators. Based on the tire tracks found at the cemetery, the profile says he probably drove a smaller car, maybe a Camaro or Mustang. It most likely was in poor repair, because that's all he could afford. Now, the police report says
0: nothing about a Camaro or Mustang. All it says is it could be a smaller type car. They inserted maybe a Camaro or Mustang, and it makes you wonder if the person they were looking at, at the time, drove a Camaro or Mustang.
1: The killer and his cohort may have headed to the cemetery that February night because it was a popular hangout for young people. When he arrived and found Witten in a car with an outsider, the killer's emotions ran wild.
0: Based on the articles they were quoted in during the early 2000s, investigators would eventually circle back to a single perpetrator theory, and we'll talk about that a little bit later.
1: Sheriff Adams, as per our conversation At least my conversation with Jerry, this is a rough draft. I typed it into the computer, so don't laugh. You will receive the official from the FBI someday. Do not release this document. Good luck, John. This analysis is based upon review of the materials submitted by your agency, and conclusions are the result of knowledge drawn from the personal investigative experience educational background, and research conducted by these crime analysts, as well as other NCAVC members. It is not a substitute for a thorough, well-planned investigation and should not be considered all-inclusive. This analysis is based upon probabilities, noting, however, that no two criminal acts or criminal personalities are exactly alike and therefore the offender at times may not fit the analysis in every category. Victimology In this section of the report we are primarily concerned with victim data, which would facilitate a rationale as to why these individuals, to the exclusion of all other individuals, fell victim to a violent crime on this particular night and in this particular fashion. The investigation conducted by the Sumter County Sheriff's Department appears to be quite thorough. Therefore, we will simply highlight those pieces of information which may help us to focus upon the nature of events which led to the victim's demise. Victim 1, Shirley Witten, was a white female, 19 years of age, and was born and raised in the area. She was employed as a cashier at the Union 76 truck stop in Wildwood, Florida. The victim had been employed in this capacity for two weeks and two days, one week on the day shift and one week on the four to midnight shift. The date of this offense was her second night on the midnight shift. The victim would begin work at midnight and would get off at 8 a.m. in the morning. She would take a lunch break at 3 a.m., and it is believed that this break was for one hour, returning at 4 a.m.
0: It does bear mentioning that Shirley had another job, up at Wildwood Middle School, where she worked in the lunchroom and as a secretary up until the time of her death. There is no indication about whether either were full-time jobs, but it is relevant, I think, that she was holding down two jobs, and the truck stop job was a fairly new one.
1: This victim is described as a friendly-type girl, As well as being involved in the hippie movement, she was known to use marijuana moderately. She dated regularly, but had no steady boyfriend. It was reported that this victim had had a date the evening prior to reporting to work. However, she had not had sex during this date. Upon completion of high school, the victim moved to Ocala, Florida, approximately 30 minutes north of Wildwood. While there, she worked at a department store. She moved to Ocala in June of 1970 and returned to the area in September of 1971. The victim would not be described as sexually promiscuous. It was reported that she had had sex with three or four men, most recently was dating a young police officer from Wildwood, Florida. It is not believed that this officer was her date on the night preceding her reporting for work.
0: He wasn't, and the name of her date was noted, along with a list of other male acquaintances, in the very first few pages of the initial incident report. Yet the profilers don't seem to know that based on the wording. However, there is a cop-sized hole in this report, in that not only was this cop that she, supposedly dating, not named in the report, I couldn't find a single other thing about the mysterious suitor, nor did anyone I spoke to even know about Shirley possibly dating a member of law enforcement.
1: Victim 2 Roger D. Higgins, white male, 26 years of age. This victim was working as a lunker, loads and unloads trucks on an over-the-road truck and had just arrived at the Wildwood truck stop at approximately 8 p.m. on February 21, 1972. The victim was scheduled to spend the night at the truck stop and then to help unload the truck that he was traveling on at 8 a.m. on February 22, and then travel on to the next location. Not a great deal is known about this victim other than the fact that he was from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and had been described as a ladies' man. Medical Examiner's Report Listeners,
0: just a quick warning. If you do not want to hear about specific injuries, skip ahead about
1: three minutes. Victim 1, Shirley Witten, was described as having a total of 30 stab and or cuts on her body. The locations of these are as follows. Four stab wounds in the chest at the base of the neck. Nineteen stab wounds in her back over a large area. One stab wound in the right leg above the knee on the inside of the leg. Four stab wounds in the back of the left leg. Two stab wounds in the outside of the left leg. One cut or stab wound in the backside of her left wrist. It is reported by the pathologist that all of the wounds, both on Victim 1 and Victim 2, were caused by the same knife, one weapon, and this knife was described as a double-edged weapon. The stab or cut wounds to the legs, arm, and wrist are indicative of defense wounds, i.e. the victim was down on her back as the offender was stabbing at her. She was using her legs and hands to ward off the blows with the knife. The large area covered by the remaining stab wounds are indicative of a loss of control on the part of the offender. Victim 2, Roger Higgins, had a total of 42 stab wounds on his body. The locations are as follows. 7 stab wounds in the left chest. 35 stab wounds in the back. In addition to the stab wounds, this victim sustained some abrasions. The location of these abrasions are as follows. Right elbow and forearm, bottom side. Right side of knee, left foot, top of instep.
0: There was a hole in his left sock over his instep, so the top of his left foot. And he had abrasions on his left foot at the top of his instep, in the same location as where that hole was in his sock.
1: There were also contusions located on this victim's body, one behind the right ear approximately one-fourth by three-eighths inch, one on the right buttock in a half-circle shape,
0: and his back pocket on the right was split from top to bottom.
1: The number and locations of the stab wounds again indicate a loss of control on the part of the offender. There are no indications of specific aggression directed toward him directly. This indicates to me that this victim was a victim of not who he was, but where he was. The abrasions and contusions are indicative of a physical altercation, fight, between this victim and the offender or offenders. The contusion behind his right ear is directly attributed to a blunt force trauma to this location. It is our opinion that there was sufficient force to have rendered him unconscious. In situations where there are multiple victims, one area we consider is comparing the amount of damage between the victims. The victim with the more damage frequently is the primary victim of the attack. In this situation, essentially both victims have basically an equal amount of injuries. In reflecting upon the victimology, victim 1 was from the area and victim 2 had only been in the area for approximately 8 hours. Our interpretation of this is that the situation the offender caught the victims in was more the cause than anything either victim did or said. Crime Scene Analysis On the night of this incident, the victim arrived for work at the appropriate time to begin work at midnight. She was seen talking to a white male, believed to be victim 2, prior to her lunch break. At 3 a.m., the victim's lunch break, the victim was seen leaving the truck stop arm-in-arm with a white male, believed to be victim 2. Victim 1 was scheduled to be back at work at 4 a.m., however she did not return. Her immediate supervisor telephoned her parents to determine if they had seen the victim. The victim was reported missing by the assistant manager of the Union 76 truck stop at approximately 6 a.m. on February 22, 1972. Both victims' bodies were discovered laying next to Shirley's vehicle, a 1963 Chevrolet four-door, in the Oak Grove Cemetery. The victims were laying on the driver's side of the vehicle, victim 1 partially laying on victim two's legs. The vehicle was parked as if it was headed out after having circled around the cemetery. Blood was discovered approximately 50 feet east of the bodies. The blood belonged to Victim 2, Roger. Lab examination indicated that there was semen present in the vaginal vault of Victim 1 as well as on the underwear of Victim 2. An attempt was not made to determine whether the semen was from a common source However, it is theorized that the victims had had intercourse with each other prior to the approach of the offender or offenders, or were possibly in the process. When the bodies of the victims were discovered, Victim 1, Witten, was nude from the waist down. Her remaining clothing, blouse and bra, were on her body and in place, and she had been stabbed through these items. Her remaining clothing was found in close proximity to her body, Victim 2 was fully dressed, however, it was discovered that the zipper in his trousers was unzipped. We do not believe that the offender or offenders either passed the victims on their way to the cemetery or followed them out there. We are more of the opinion that the offender or offenders were just cruising, looking for something to do. More specifically, we believe that the offender or offenders had more than likely closed the local bar purchased one or two six-packs of beer and began cruising as they drank their beer. They drove out to the cemetery knowing this was a favorite hangout for young people, thinking that they might meet some friends or find something else to do. The victims would have had to have been at the cemetery for a period of time prior to the offender or offender's arrival, because they had already engaged in sex. The possibility exists that they had just completed upon their arrival due to the fact that the female had not gotten dressed. Victim, too, had pulled his pants up, however, had not taken the time to zip them up, possibly due to the interruption of the offender or offenders.
0: Now, the analysts do not expound upon why they didn't think Roger and Shirley were followed from the truck stop. However, they do, in fact, mention it as a possibility in another section of this same report when talking about the truck stop itself, relative to the offender or offender's night cruising. It seems likely that they decided if Shirley was being followed all that way, a drive that I have made and it's a couple miles along back roads, that the person following them, well, their presence wouldn't have gone unnoticed. I tend to agree about that to some extent, especially at 3 a.m. I guess it would depend on how good this person who was following them was at being stealthy. To this theory, though, it does appear that the offender or offenders went undetected by Shirley and Roger for long enough that they were able to be interrupted in the act. Shirley was not fully dressed. It's possible that the offender turned off their headlights on approach, particularly if they were very familiar with the cemetery and their intent all along was to sneak up on or ambush their victims. Another possibility, the perpetrator or perpetrators lived nearby or were positioned close enough that they could see the arrival of her vehicle into the cemetery. I will note that the area is a bit elevated, meaning it's on a hill. There's a witness statement from a bus driver that was driving the area in the morning that the bodies were found, and she noted that she had seen a dark vehicle that ended up being Shirley's vehicle, quote, parked on the hill in the cemetery and she saw this from some distance away while driving on an intersecting crossroad.
1: We do not believe that sex was the motive in this offense. This is predicated on the fact that it does not appear any attempt was made to further disrobe victim number one. We are more inclined to believe that the motive of this homicide was basically the offender caught an outsider engaged in sex with one of the local girls. This was more a proprietary motive. The exact chronology of events will not be known until disclosed by the offenders. However, an attempt will be made to describe them as theorized by analysts. Theory Upon victim 1 getting off from work for her lunch break, they, victims 1 and 2, went to the Oak Grove Cemetery, believed for the purpose of having sex. Due to the late night hour and short time they did not go all the way into the cemetery but rather parked on the hard surfaced road and engaged in sexual activities. In close proximity to completing sex, the victims were approached by the offender or offenders. The male victim stepped out of the car to converse with them and was assaulted. During this assault, Victim 1 attempted to drive away from the area, and during this initial attempt, Victim 2 tried to get back into the vehicle, leaving his blood on the left rear door. Victim 1 was successful in getting the vehicle started and drove west on Ice Plant Road and then turned north into the cemetery and circled around to exit. When the offender, or offenders, observed the vehicle leaving, one maintained control over Victim 2, which was already injured, and the other pursued Victim 1 in there, the offender's vehicle. Rather than following Victim 1 around the cemetery, the offender cut across between the headstones and basically cut her off. As victim one stopped her vehicle, the offender pulled around and got up on the left side of the driver's side and at this point got out and punctured all four tires of the victim's vehicle. In addition to puncturing the tires, just to be safe, the offender reached in the vehicle and took the keys out of the ignition. At this point, the other offender made victim two, who was critically injured, Walk to the vehicles.
0: I'm puzzled about how they determined that Roger was, quote, walked back to the vehicle, and I'm not sure I understand what the point of that would even be, from the perspective of the perpetrator or perpetrators. That would first require that Roger was physically able to walk back and he was compliant. It seems to me that the analysts thought that because they were following the blood drops back to the vehicle, where it was found parked. Their theory was that Shirley's car wasn't stopped on the gravel road where it was found the next day, but instead, when the perpetrator or perpetrators approached, the car was parked on Ice Plant Road, the main road into the cemetery, when the offender or offenders came upon the victims. I can only assume that they thought this because it's where the larger amount of blood was found, and that perhaps, as soon as Roger got out of the car, that physical altercation ensued. Also, most of their theory seems to rely on there being two perpetrators. However, later re-investigations would focus on a one-perpetrator theory, so we must also consider that Shirley's vehicle was parked where it was later found when the couple encountered the single offender. And that would basically mean that she had initially driven into the cemetery from the Ice Plant Road and circled around that capital P-shaped gravel road and curved around to stop just before it intersected the Ice Plant Road. Leaving her vehicle pointing in the appropriate direction to pull straight forward and take a left to exit when they were ready to leave. Which to me makes more sense. That's probably what I would do. That way you're assured an easy exit, but you can also see other cars approaching. You wouldn't want to be parked on the ice plant road, even on the side of that road, if it's known as a lover's lane, and risk other couples driving right past your window. It seems more reasonable that you would circle the cemetery and find a spot off to the side, which is how I would describe where her vehicle was found the next morning. In that scenario, when the single offender drove up, maybe Roger got out to interact with the offender, a physical altercation ensued, and what began as a fist fight, which is supported by the medical examiner's report, ended with the perpetrator pulling out a weapon, which was not used on the tires until he had already begun stabbing Roger, given that there was blood found next to one of the slits in a tire. That would mean that the blood trail down Ice Plant Road was Roger running away from the vehicle instead of being walked toward it. Perhaps he was running to get help, but stopped for some reason. Maybe the perpetrator ran after him to complete the assault. Maybe that's where he was knocked unconscious, and he laid there long enough that the perpetrator thought he was dead, and then the perpetrator left. Once the perpetrator's gone, maybe Roger got up and stumbled his way back to Shirley, and now they're both critically injured, with no car keys, and a vehicle with flat tires. They're both bleeding out until they collapse right there next to the car.
1: After it became obvious to the offenders that victim 2 was not going to survive the attack, they, the offenders, would not allow victim 1 to live in fear of her telling police.
0: This part about the perp or perp's killing Shirley because, once they killed Roger, she couldn't be left as a witness, seems thin to me an indirect contradiction to the profiler's findings about the majority of stab wounds to both victims being about a loss of control. That's not someone stopping to think about how they now have to kill the other victim. Being out of control is someone who's not necessarily thinking until it's too
1: late. We opine that only one offender, the dominant offender, did all of the stabbing. More than likely, the dominant offender made the weaker offender stab one or both of the victims at least one time. This would bind him to the offense. Offender Characteristics and Traits When looking at these homicides, one must consider the possibility of more than one offender. There is nothing specific that indicates there were more than one offender, other than the control needed to deal with both victims. Due to the absence of ligature marks on either victim, we are of the opinion that there were two offenders.
0: While the control aspect makes sense when theorizing to offenders, I think it's important to note that a great deal of control related to Shirley's movements, at least, could be attributed to her state of undress. Based on her boots appearing to have been thrown out of the vehicle ten feet west of it, and her underwear and pants being on the other side of the vehicle, we can theorize that that fact alone controlled her to some extent, keeping her inside the car for some period of time, maybe even trying to lock herself in given that the two passenger side doors had the locks engaged. I'm not sure that I would have ever willingly exited that vehicle with nothing on below the waist. However, their theory suggested that Shirley at least tried to get into the front seat and drive the vehicle away. That seems possible, given that soda, which was overturned in the front seat and it had splashed on the dash, on the floor, and it had caused puddles in the driver's seat. Those puddles were described as not having been sat upon. So that could have happened while she was clambering over the seat from the back, where they had been seated when interrupted. Or it could have spilled if she had gunned the gas as she tried to get away, as they outline in the profile. In that event, it would likely mean that Shirley was pulled out of the driver's door, since the passenger front door was locked, and the report notes that the puddles on the seat were not disturbed. The back driver's door with Roger's blood on the handle and smeared near the right quarter panel could have been him trying to get back in, which would explain why it was ajar, but there was no blood found inside the vehicle, none, so he was never able to get inside, and that suggests that no part of the stabbing occurred while either victim was inside the vehicle. None of Shirley's footwear had blood on it either. As for the theory of Shirley trying to get away in the vehicle, That would also explain the tires being slashed and the keys being removed. I'm not sure any perpetrator would feel the need to do both unless he believed that they were either able or actively trying to get away.
1: When profiling multiple offenders, we describe the dominant personality. The offender characteristics and traits take into consideration all of the general areas addressed in the analysis. Available research indicates that crimes of this nature typically occur along interracial lines, i.e. black on black and white on white. Based on the information presented, the behavior exhibited at the crime scene, and owing to a lack of forensic evidence to the contrary, it is felt that this holds true for this specific case, and that the offender or offenders are white males. The house slippers found at the crime scene were considered, However, it is our opinion that they are artifact, having nothing to do with the homicide.
0: Remember, there was what they called a quote, Negroid hair on one of the slippers. So that very likely played into why they felt that the slippers were not related. And that's possible. However, their location bears repeating. One slipper was about 25 feet directly behind her car, and the other was about 10 feet in front of it. Since her own boots were about the same distance from at least one of those slippers, I don't think we can so easily dismiss it. Also, when we're talking about footwear, we can assume that there will be all kinds of hair and fibers found on a cloth shoe. I don't necessarily think that that means that the person who was wearing those slippers or left them was black.
1: When considering the age of the offender, a number of factors pertinent to the crime are analyzed. Such factors as age of the victim or victim's, interpersonal relationships of the victim or victims, amount of control exhibited by the offender, types of and degree of inflicted trauma, all become important aspects. When considering these aspects of this particular case, we would expect your offender to be in his early to mid-twenties. It should be noted that age is a difficult category to establish since behavior is guided by emotional and mental maturity and not chronological age. No suspect should be ruled out because of age. The offender was either unemployed or worked the 4 to midnight shift. He had no early morning responsibilities. If employed, he will work in a manual labor type of job, i.e. gas station attendant, unskilled mechanic, etc. I would expect that your offender dropped out of high school in about the 10th grade. For fun and excitement, your offender is going to be a cruiser. He is going to habitually drive around looking for something to do. Additionally, he is going to do this late at night until early in the morning. Due to the fact that the truck stop is probably about all there was open in that area, he would have been a frequent fixture there. The possibility exists that he either filled up with gas and or had something to eat there prior to the homicides. He may have been in there earlier, prior to Victim 1's lunch break, and saw the two victims talking to each other. Then when he drove by at a later time and saw the victim's vehicle missing, he decided to drive out to the cemetery to see if they could be there. Due to the statements of the investigators in reference to the width of the offender's vehicle, I would suggest that he drove a Mustang, Camaro, Falcon, or some other mid-sized vehicle. This vehicle is going to have been in poor condition and not very well maintained. It is going to be the most the offender can afford. Post-Offense Behavior Immediately after the assault, the assailant or assailants returned to their residence or a location in which he felt secure to clean the blood from his clothing and his person. A relative or other associate may have seen some evidence of the crime at the offender's residence. For a period of several days after the homicide, the offender will have become noticeably nervous, preoccupied and withdrawn. He may have secluded himself in his residence for a period of 24 to 48 hours after the assault. It is not likely that he attended the victim's funeral, unless his presence would have been expected. If he did so, he would have made his presence known and exited As soon as possible. One or both of these offenders are going to leave the area. They will have a legitimate reason for leaving, i.e. to join the military or visit a relative. Although they will leave, they will return to the community. When you have two people involved in a crime like this, you see one of two things. One, the people become inseparable. Or two, Two people who were very close to each other who are now not associating with each other. Almost by mutual agreement, they decide not to be together. After this incident, the offender or offenders would be noticeably absent from the truck stop. They would not frequent this location, not wanting to bring suspicion upon themselves. Obviously, if the offender worked at the truck stop, he would eventually return to work.
0: I understand why when looking at this case, analysts would make the connection that this offender must be a cruiser because they've already said that they don't think the perpetrator or perpetrators followed the victim and the cemetery is very remote. It's also just after 3 a.m. so most people are at home in bed at this time. It's a very rural area. So the only thing that makes sense, the only dot that you can connect is that you've got an offender or offenders that make a habit of driving around in the wee hours of the night up to drinking and no good. But let me ask you this. Do you think if the FBI analysts who prepared this profile knew at the time that Shirley had dated a young man who lived in a home on property that abutted the cemetery, do you think that might have changed the trajectory of the profile? Stay tuned.